Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. For hunters who are seeking the ultimate edge, Quiet Cat's Apex Pro is the answer. Its unparalleled performance and stealth are designed to enhance any hunt. Quiet Cat is more than an e-bike, though. It's a revolution in how you approach the wilderness, ensuring you can go further and hunt smarter. Save 10% on the Apex Pro and elevate your pursuits when you use code MEATEATER at quietcat.com. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. I'm with Giannis, podcast horror brutalis. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Randall Williams, who has been on this, who's been on the show before, an environmental historian. Um, I like to accidentally call him randall weaver who is the ruby ridge standoff person but it's in fact randall williams does that have any randalls no everybody switches to randy it's endearing yeah i know one other randall he's actually a neighbor i got a friend named randy with an eye on the end and i call her randall <laughs> which she don't like i can't imagine <laughs> <laughs> and matt elliott's here from uh who, who drove up from world benchmade world headquarters down in where like in Portland proper? Yeah, Oregon City. Yeah. Oregon City. There's an east and a west side thing in in uh, Portland. If you live on the east side, you don't really consider yourself in Portland unless you're actually east Portland. But in eastern Oregon, they call everything pretty much west of the mountains Portland. Yeah. 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 So are you like in the redneck part of Portland? Is there a redneck yeah. part? Yeah, that's the redneck part. It's the industrial area. So you guys still drink like Sanka and Folgers and stuff, and it's not like... <laughs> <laughs> There's still 55 Starbucks within a mile from okay. <laughs> from Benchmade, yeah. Um, anyhow, we were just talking about hunting spots and stealing people's GPSs. And, uh, and Giannis, tell, tell what happened now. You were, what happened now? You are on an airplane and... Which, uh, you which ran into a dude who lift. used to live where you live. Ski lift. Oh, right. Yo, right, you're right. on a ski lift. Yeah, I was skiing. And uh, I met him through... I won't name any names so he didn't get in trouble, but... I met him through another friend, a colleague of ours, and uh, we were skiing together. And uh, it turns out that he was a fishing guide and did, dabbled in hunting guiding a little bit and actually knew a friend of mine from Colorado. And 
now lives um, back east. And uh, so I was kind of thinking like, well, maybe I could get probably a little bit of information out of him, you know? So I just slipped in like a, yeah, I'm new here. And, you know, what do you know about hunting right here around the ski area? And I mean, that just opened up the floodgates, man. I couldn't, I should have just had my iPhone out on record, but. Because he used to hit all that stuff and moved away to Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, you know, we were just saying how guys that don't, you know, you just don't protect your hunting spots as much as, as you once did once you move away from an area. Dude, know? in the guidebook, in the guidebook, I say I've gotten a lot of hunting spots by talking to people who used to live somewhere that don't anymore because they don't care. And then now I'm in the situation where I used to live, a, you know, I spent a lot of time a decade ago somewhere. And I'll tell people now, I'll be like, oh, you know, I haven't been there in a decade, but go check it out. And I, I knew this dude who was working on, you know, Onyx, Onyx Maps. Yeah. They're in Missoula. So I know a guy who moved to Missoula to work there. And I'm like, hey, man, you know what you ought to do is there's this place we used to find bears in the spring. I'm like, go around May 11th, like between the 6th and the 11th, Drive up to this trailhead, and you're going to get out of your car, and you're going to think it's ridiculous because there's going to be an ass load of snow. Never mind the snow. Walk up two miles, and there's going to be a southeast exposure that's going to have a bald spot on it the size of a couple football fields, and watch that for the day because it used to work out. He goes up there one day, comes back, calls me, says, oh, it's too snowy. I'm like, dude, just... Park, go back, walk up. It doesn't matter what it looks like with the snow. Never mind the snow. Goes up there, sits there. Black bear comes out, misses it. So I'm like, that spot still is good. (laughs) So old spots can be good. Definitely. Animals don't know how much time went by. (laughs) (laughs) I think think they're cyclical too, you know, spots. I think that they get popular with guys. They start to get hit hard. Animals maybe move out a little bit mm. or you get a little nocturnal. And then all of a sudden everybody's like, this spot sucks. And then you roll in. You know, to you, it's like Nirvana because you just roll in. There's nobody there. Yeah. That happens even inside of the season. You know, it's like yep. people go and hit up a spot. They might have drawn a limited entry tag and the people are hunting it. We That happened to us last year. There was just a ton of pressure on this spot and everybody bailed because the elk were shut down. Because the human pressure definitely affects you know, how vocal the elk are. My buddy felt like there was no elk to be found. We'd drawn the tag sort of on his preference points. We said, all right, well, you know, go home. I'll hunt the coast instead. And we we bailed out of there. And then a friend of mine uh, told me later who knew some guys from Roseburg that I'd, that I'd run into there and said, oh, you guys are going back to the coast. You know, have fun shooting your little five point. We'll be here chasing these big bulls. And and I talked to my buddy Ty Stubblefield actually, and he he told me, yeah, I talked to him. That you know, they the elk lit up like two days later for the last four days of the season. Everybody bailed out of there, and the pressure got lighter, and the elk just oh really? Yeah, got fired up again. Conversely, I got a friend. He's passed away now, but he uh, was up in the Tobacco Root Mountains and just you know stumbled onto a herd elk on a hillside. And that dude could never get it out of his head. And like when he went elk hunting, his elk hunt was to go and be like, nope, <laughs> not there. Go back to his truck. I mean, for years he just had, it was like, you check, they're either there or not there. And then, you know, and yeah. later I was like, I think that just Sunday someone bumps some elk and they wound up on that hillside. <laughs> I've taken that approach before where you just can't, can't shake it that you've seen an animal there. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was just like it haunted him, man. It was just he just liked the idea of him on that slope. <laughs> um, the other day I had to go down to Kansas to do a. I was like giving a talk to all the people that teach hunters ed in Kansas, and I get off the plane and spend about an hour driving behind a dude who's got a thing. Um, I'd rather be shooting Yankees. Remember that. Um, <laughs> Which is particularly offensive to me, having lived in four northern tier states. Um, but I went to this thing, and, I, and, and I'm giving this talk to the hunting ed instructors. There's several hundred of them there. And this guy asked me a question about what's my thought on eating bullet lead, right? Lead and meat. And I go to, and we get to talking about x rays that they're kind of floating around online where they've, They'll shoot an animal with a, you know, a jacketed lead bullet, and then looking where all the lead winds up yeah. in the carcass, um, because it gets into little fragments get in the vascular system and wind up being far removed from the wound channel, and it hits bone and breaks off and gets sent off in various directions. And these X-rays are floating around. And you look like you look at something that's been hit in the shoulder, and I mean. There's bits of lead nine, ten inches out from there. And when I started looking at those pictures and a friend who's a big anti-lead advocate, um, he's, he's a biologist. I'll give him some credit. But uh, big anti-lead guy. He's the one that sent it to me, and it's kind of like disbelief that people are eating this stuff. Other people I know, this is all something we conversed about. Other people I know... Um, say that that the way that is it's inert your body doesn't dissolve that lead down you just pass it out a guy commented how he'd been eating the old guy he's in his 70s he's been eating wild game his entire life says i can't even imagine how many shotgun pellets i've eaten he went in and asked his doctor to test his lead he said they don't even test lead he man like he insisted that someone test his lead and he had you know, like wherever the, I, I feel like he was telling me like high lead is 0.2 something or whatever. And he didn't even have like detectable levels. Hmm. So he's like, if you, if it can happen, it can happen to me. We have this big conversation. So a- after I give the talk, this old timer comes up to me and, uh, establishes his credentials in the field of lead by explaining that he was a 25 years, like a munitions guy in the military. And, uh, he starts telling me that it's all this whole thing about lead is BS, about lead ammo, okay? That lead ammo um, and shot pellets and stuff like that doesn't affect wildlife. Um, it's not soluble in that form. It just passes through your system that it was all malarkey when the, the steel shot you know, when the lead, the lead shot ban for federal migratory waterfowl went into play and he had a point to me, he says, how many times have you opened up a gizzard in your life off a duck or a goose and found a pellet in it? And I got thinking about it and it had never happened. And he said, I've been hunting waterfowl my whole life and never seen a pellet in there. And he pointed out that now you can't use lead. Let me back up and clarify that when... What year was it the lead band? 80? I remember I was already hunting when it went into effect. Um, they they phased it out over the final few years of the 80s, and I think 91 was the first year when nobody could hunt 
migratory birds with lead shot. Yeah. So they had ducks and geese pick up um, grit for their crop, you know, and, and uh, they pick up gravel and it goes into crop and they don't have a stomach or not like you think. So when they eat food, what am I trying to say? Let me back up. Pick up grit for their gizzard goes in their gizzard so when a when a bird eats he'll his food will go into his crop then from his crop it goes down to his gizzard and the gizzard is like this muscle that squeezes and it's full of rocks and uh the rocks pulverize the food That's so they like, they build their digestive system basically by yeah, eating things that will grind up whatever they eat and then the grind up materials eventually get so ground up that it just pass through the bird that's why you always see different times of day you always see grouse or doves or any number of things feeding on the side of the road just pecking around. They're just going to get gravel. Um, waterfowl, the argument goes, and we'll get into the truth of this or not. Waterfowl picks up shot, lead shot as grit, and then they would get lead poisoning, and, and it would cause the birds to get lethargic and, and, and die. So in the late 80s, early 90s, for because waterfowls manage on the federal level a federal ban on using lead shot went into effect. I remember that happening as a kid. And I remember guys quit. I remember it yeah. was like guys quit hunting <laughs> over the lead issue. And and to clarify, it it really raised its head in the mid seventies, like in seventy four, seventy five, um, and with groups demanding an environmental impact statement for. Um, the federal waterfowl regulations. And then in 76, they issued an environmental impact statement that addressed this and they began to impose restrictions on certain areas in lead shot. And that raised sort of the specter of, you know, is lead eventually going to go away? And then in the late, um, I think in 85 or 86, there was an amended environmental impact statement that really addressed um, sort of the secondary effects of lead. And that was the, the, basically, there was a suit that claimed that the environmental impact statement uh, that addressed the impact of lead on waterfowl didn't address the impact of eagles eating waterfowl poisoned by lead. And so sort of the secondary uh, effects yep. of lead. And so that's what really led to the eventual, okay, lead's eventually going to go away. And then they began to slowly phase it out. Now you're talking um, about Led Zeppelin, right? Indeed, no. yeah. <laughs> um, so, by 91, it was done. Yeah. Yeah. Guys got pissed because mm-hmm. lead maintains its velocity. You know, it's heavier, so mm-hmm. it maintains its velocity. And, and when people got done with lead, everybody went to steel, which is much lighter. Now there's all kinds of other stuff that's really expensive. Mm-hmm. But um, people were pissed because crippling loss most people anecdotally felt that crippling loss was much higher shooting steel than lead. Um, it was a controversial move, and people felt that the science wasn't there. And this guy was pointing out that not only was the science there, but the birds aren't picking it up anyway. This is just a dude on the street, okay, telling me this. So after I had this conversation, I checked in with a couple of biologist friends who were um, who weren't of age at that time, right? So they, they work on waterfowl. One in particular, my friend Brant, works on waterfowl now, but, you know, he's young. He doesn't, he wasn't involved with that at the time, and he just operates, and, and he, 
substantiates it, but he just operates under the assumption that, uh, you know, that it was a good move. What do you get? I mean, the reason it's important now, or the reason I'm starting to wonder about it now is because he has so many issues now with guys, uh, being worried about humans ingesting lead and game meat. Did anybody find a study on how much lead you have to ingest for it to be damaging? I saw, I found studies on on birds, you know, how how much lead a bird would have in its system before they really felt like it was impacting the bird's psych, psychological state. You know, they, they talked about birds, how they kind of go crazy if they have too much lead. And I, I don't remember what the actual yeah, number was. What but it was the count like, was. Yeah, like point one or something, they, it starts to impact them. But, but it has to be like point six for it to really be fatal or, you know, something, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I remember this guy was saying he had his lead checked. It was, that's why he, he had his lead checked. It was point two. Yeah. And um, maybe like two. I can't remember what the hell he was saying. Maybe it's point six where it really starts. Dangerous, like you, dangerous, yeah. was at a certain level. Yeah, I mean, I looked into some of this, especially with the uh, the recent events in Michigan. Sort of the history of of lead poisoning. That's and, industrial and, lead, right? Yeah. I mean, no, it's it's a it's often a lead. It's already been the, like soluble. Yeah, no, it's a different. I mean, it's a different case. But just thinking about. Um, the effects of lead on on the body. I guess I, I did some background reading, and, and it was sort of interesting that um, you know the, the 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 knowledge that lead is toxic to human beings is very old. But it's only sort of in the late twentieth century that I mean the idea of acute lead poisoning um, from like high levels of exposure that that's old knowledge. Um, but the but I guess the the recognition that small exposure was also dangerous is much more recent, like in the late 20th century, especially to kids. It's so like subclinical levels of yeah, exposure. Yeah, they test, yeah. like my kids, they test yeah. my kids for lead mm-hmm. all the time. And when people get it, it winds up being they're getting it from eating paint and they're eating dirt that's been, has a lot of right. lead in it from, from when gasoline was leaded. Right. Soluble lead. You know? I just want to know, and I don't know, because I keep, I've heard it from credible sources either way. I just want to know if there's ever been a case where... A hunter and fisherman. Now, I spent my whole life with split shot in my mouth because that's where we store it. Like, you're out fishing, you know, you're running three split shot, and then you're in another area where you only had one, two go in your mouth. Then you're in an area where you wish you had two. You pull one out of your mouth, put it on. And clamp it with your teeth. Then you're free lining it. it with your teeth. And you got yeah. all three you in your mouth, pliers. and you're yep. setting them on and off. And it's like, I grew up sucking on. Uh-huh. I've eaten, I don't know how many shotgun pellets, how many lead fragments. Right? Yeah. Can anyone point to where a person got lead poisoning from any kind of hunting and fishing related activities? Also, how documented is it that when birds and I'm not trying to be like I'm not trying to be contrarian, how documented is it that ducks and geese that have high lead are actually getting the lead from shot and not from industrial pollutants? Do you know? I, I think you'd have to find a different set of experts to uh, <laughs> no, I know. speak to I'm that. Not, no, I'm not, asking, I'm not asking you to tell yeah. me this because as far as I can tell, it almost seems like unanswerable. Yeah, how, would you even, yeah, how would you even be able to observe them you know, being migratory, actually That's ingesting the lead? And how would you know they were me. eating lead versus eating This guy was telling me, yeah, they got lead poisoning. They got lead poisoning from industrial pollutants. Like yeah. Soluble lead, you know? He's saying they're not getting it from picking up your number six shot. 
Yeah. That's what he's claiming to me. He says, I, you're yeah, passing I mean, that stuff. The, the turn to steel isn't the only variable there. Like the unleaded gas has certainly changed. You know, the switch to unleaded gas has certainly changed the amount of lead which is in the environment. Con- yeah, yeah. Which, which is contemporaneous right. with... I remember being in high school and dudes having to go buy, like, dudes, this dude I grew up with, Brian Peterson, he had to go buy lead to put, like, as they were phasing out lead in gas stations, he had to go buy a lead additive to run his old-ass car. Huh. So, that that was his claim. And I'm not posing it like you're supposed to know the answer. But the reason it's significant is, I've hunted in areas in California, you can't use lead. Mm-hmm. Right? Lead the bullets. Condor. You can't use yeah. lead bullets, the yeah. condor zone. And it's because they are like, those things are getting lead poisoning from eating carrion from, from... And that is proven science. Well, it's proven that they have... Here's the other thing. This guy was telling me, you can't detect... When you can tell something has been poisoned, you can tell it's been poisoned by heavy metals. You can't necessarily... He was saying, you can't necessarily tell that it's lead has heavy metal poisoning. He blames it on industrial discharge... And things like leaded gasoline, industrial discharge, and all these other causes. And he's saying rather than address these causes, people have put their focus that it somehow has to do with lead ammunition. When tuna, right, and other things have some of these other things have high heavy metals or mercury, mercury or other yeah. he's are they eating shot? Is someone shooting tunas <laughs> with lead you know? It's, I don't understand. So I did read about a ban on lead sinkers in, yeah. in Great Britain. Dude, that seems ridiculous to me. And, uh, but, but I guess, and, and this is just from reading the literature and no real you know, detailed knowledge of it, but I guess there was a, a documented um, boom in, in this particular swan population that was affected that led to this ban. It was what? Like, yeah, it was like, sure, yeah, like the, these, these particular... Don't they know how to put the split shot on? <laughs> this particular <laughs> sounds like they need to have like a like a public service announcement about crimping it on better. I don't know. Um, they, <laughs> <laughs> but they 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 when I, they switched when they switched it was like the number of these swans bumped up by like thirty eight percent or something. Really, that was, that was the statistic that I read. And and yeah, again, it was just sort of some background reading. But yeah, but I mean, you know, you know, you could read that a thousand ways. Yeah. I like I hate listening to myself right now because I sound like the incredulous uh-huh. old geezer who hates change <laughs> and like acts like expertise is sus. I sound like like a like Donald Trump, right? Like experts, I don't need experts tell me what I know. You know, I know the sun rises. So it, there's a difference between not believing everything you read and and not believing things that that uh, you don't agree with. Yeah. Now, I told Yanni a quote one time. Tell the quote I told you, or did you forget? I forgot. Skepticism is the chastity of the intellect. Mm. Can't remember who said it. It's good, though. It's good. Yeah. So, I'm trying. I've always carried around an assumption. For a while, I switched and stopped shooting lead bullets. Started shooting monolithic bullets. Pure copper. Yeah. People are going in that direction anyway. But for a while, I was just like, all right, I'll shoot these. It's a little different. You got to, you know, you generally kind of hold a little bit different and makes everything different. I always like bonded bullets. Now I'm kind of shooting them again. The other day, I got a email from a friend of mine who's a, uh, a biologist, highly educated, 
in the natural sciences, very avid hunter, and sent me a thing about uh, Oregonians' use of lead, sort of a survey about people's relationships with lead ammunition. He was very upset. I'm hunting with this guy this spring. Um, and I'm trying to think. I got to check my ammo because I don't want to show up with lead ammo because he's so. <laughs> but I'm hunting with him this spring. But just distraught that he's like that. Our fellow Cazadors, for you non-Spanish speaking folks, that Spanish for hunter, are littering the landscape and littering their food with this stuff. Hmm. And I just don't know if it's like true or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what what sort of an effect it has, but when you think about the numbers of, um, you know, lead that, you know, prior to the steel shot, you think about the number, the, the amount of lead that was pumped over oh. like pothole lakes and things like that. I mean, thousands of tons. Yeah. Muskegon State game area where I yeah. grew up, you'd go out on opening day and shoot a couple boxes of shells. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like raining shot. Yeah. And just each, what, just and what landed in my hat. Would have been enough to kill somebody. And each bang is is an ounce, an ounce and an eighth. You know, there's, uh, there's a whole there's a whole another component to this issue that's sort of coming out. I was reading a research article about the impacts to gun clubs and and studies that they've done on gun clubs because environmentalists are now coming after gun clubs. You know, over putting lead into the ground, and, and this guy told me that's bullshit. Right, right. <laughs> and, well, so this, so this, so this study actually, you know, I think there's things that seem like they're more legitimate and grounded in science, the arguments environmentalists make, and then there's other things that are just irrational and emotional based because they're just really going after whatever issue because of some polarization of their politics or whatever it might be. But this particular study, they were looking at the impacts around the gun club, and they found, at least as far as the water goes. That uh, that lead doesn't go very far. That type of lead it can't go very far. So it, it they found that it did impact the top two inches of soil, but nothing nothing else. But he it, told me six inches. So this study I read was two. So <laughs> and and again, I think one of the difficulties I have in, in really forming an opinion about this, other than talking to biologists like you've had the opportunity to do, is it's hard looking around at the internet and hearing these to really discern. And that's something that sounds like the the military person you talked to was was getting at a little bit also is like it's hard to discern how much of this is somebody's like opinion or or an emotional opinion and how much of it is actually grounded in science and, yeah and even when you look at scientific articles it's still they still sort of seem to have oftentimes a bit of an angle so i guess in the absolutely end, man. right but i think that here's kind of where i'm going where i'm going on it is i don't think we're done making mistakes we all laugh now like I was telling a story recently that my dad had uh, got shot in the foot with a shotgun. And he would go to shoe stores to show people the pellets in his foot. And they would x-ray your foot in a shoe store to see if your shoe fit right. Okay? So everybody's standing around a shoe store all day long, no protection, x-raying people's feet. The shoe salesman guy, right? We now realize that that's not a good idea to be exposed to that level. Okay? So we're not done making these mistakes. We laugh now, like the way they used to, my dad said when he, again, my old man, when he was in the army, they'd put cigarettes in your rations. When he was stationed, when he was in World War II, I think he said that you had three cigarettes in your sea ration each meal. So we now laugh like, ha, 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 can you believe that they didn't know? We're not done making mistakes, right? 
I'm in full agreement. <laughs> yeah. We're making them right now. Yeah. And our kids will be like, can you believe those sons of bitches used to X? Yeah. And it's us right now at this table. So in some way, I'm like, okay, if there is all the hysteria and some people are sitting around saying like, yeah, but you can't totally, you don't really know. You can't totally prove. You don't really know. At what point are you being like big tobacco? Who probably is still arguing that cigarettes are fine, you know, or the NFL and that concussions don't matter. It's like at some point, um, the tide turns. And, you know, I, I, on one hand, I don't want to like stop doing something because it just works so good and then be down the road like the guy who is the late adopter. But on the other hand, I don't want to be like, uh, I don't want to be misled. If you've learned anything after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, it's this. There's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, no way, can't be true. But there isn't a catch. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash eater. That's mintmobile.com slash eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash eater. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Make life insurance part of your financial planning this year. Start shopping now with Policy Genius to find the right policy to protect your family. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses while getting back on their feet. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Hey, I'm kind of an afternoon hydrator. Like, you know, I wake up in the morning and drink a bunch of coffee, then later in the day, I'm like, man, I gotta hydrate. And then uh, I'll see some liquid IV and then I'll drink a whole bunch because I like it a lot. It helps me stay hydrated because it motivates me to do it. Now, it doesn't matter if you like hydrate to live or live to hydrate. Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drinks. And no artificial sweeteners, plus zero sugar in the sugar-free version. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco. 
or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use our code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Superior Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. I spend a lot of time outside. And I spend a lot of time hydrating with Liquid IV because, like I said, I love it. And it makes me drink like I know I should. It makes me feel great. Check it out. LiquidIV.com. LED. Misled. <laughs> I suppose in the end, you just have to be open to reality when it comes to you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and I think this is one of those issues, too, that, um, it, you know, there's a tendency, I think, to if you don't necessarily agree with something or you're on the other side of the issue, you begin to um, misrepresent the intentions of the other side, right? And I think. Give me an example. Well, I guess like um, in a recent podcast, you had a, a letter from a listener who's talking about the reintroduction of wolves as a. Um, Oh, a ploy, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, the, was it a, was it a ploy to get rid of hunting, or what that that <laughs> the Clintons pushed for the wolf reintroduction as a way to disarm America? Oh, steeper than because hunting, the yeah. wolves would eat all of the game, and everyone would be like, "Well, fuck it," and sell their guns. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to someone else. I mean, like, or I guess in his mind that they would destroy them. In a way, like not they could they sold me still be in existence, but it was just a way to get to disarm America. And I'm like, you know, the wolf reintroduction was controversial. That seems like a very roundabout way of yeah. disarming. And I mean, <laughs> that that guy, that guy's, you know, he's he's allowed, he's fully entitled to his his Wait, disagreement. I got to give him decision. credit. I got to give him credit. He was saying. That his buddy, his buddy, think, his okay. buddy yeah. thinks that, and he was wanting to find a way to articulate to his buddy why that's probably not true. Yeah, no, we won't. Paint so him yeah, into, yeah, we won't. We won't paint him into that box. But um, you know, that that guy's fully entitled to his to his belief that wolf reintroduction was a bad idea, but it doesn't change the fact that there were decades of um, biological studies and scientific studies that led up to that decision, and there's a documented history of of what the um, so if, you know, if the Clintons were to go back in time and and uh, and and create this ploy, I mean, and and the other thing too, I guess, is that um, the initial intention behind certain policies can be subverted by other groups or can be used to further other agendas. That doesn't necessarily mean that that policy was bad from the get-go. Yeah, right, right? or that it was all part of one uh, conspiracy. So. Um, yeah, that person, should, to, that person could say, um, I don't agree with Wolf reintroduction, and I don't think Hillary Clinton is gun-friendly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but he's like, and, but he's like, but I'm going to tie those two things together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's one of those, I think, I think the lead issue is, um, is one that, that sort of, uh, lends itself to that sort of a, a a polarization, right? Because as you say, um, there are groups out there trying to shut down shooting ranges because of this threat. Um, 
and and obviously it's there's some debate as to how much of a threat it poses to human health but they're trying to shut down shooting ranges and so that is construed then as an attack on sort of larger yeah. issues um but i think there are certain things that we have to <laughs> agree on and one is that lead can be toxic and it's not good for you not good for you and uh so yeah i don't know i think i think at some point you have to come to an agreement on the fundamentals of a particular issue before you begin That's what's right. bugging me is i have an enormous cash like if i was ever getting trouble and they raided my house they'd be like he was cashing ammo i'm like well I, you know <laughs> it looks like that but let's well, just say always, he, let's just say he, he had a bunch practice. of it yeah. you can always practice with your lead ammo <laughs> yeah. no because what are you gonna do you still out there it, it's really unfortunate that in issues almost any issue that people are passionate about that the polar opposites cause people in the middle to feel like there's no truth yeah you mm-hmm. know it's like that's what you're talking about is like you know people trying to shut down shooting ranges and so then people are like oh well people are trying to shut down shooting ranges then you know there's no way that bullets are killing condors lead bullets are killing condors like even though there's science people just sort of throw it all out the window because they yeah. feel like they smell you know, where it's coming to, from yeah, right exactly mm-hmm I'll point out that the gentleman who I spoke with, uh, what alerted me to bias is he used the term eco-fascists. Ooh, <laughs> that's a tell. Like so then I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's that that ruins the rhetoric, right? Yeah, it's like when, when someone says to me like if they're talking about like some aspect of of liberals they don't like, and they go, yeah, the libtards. It just shuts me down. Yeah. I'm like, you know what? I'd probably like, honestly, I probably would wind up agreeing with you on whatever it is you're talking about. But the fact that you just use that term makes it very difficult for me to carry on this conversation because I would hate for another version of you to typify my perspectives as right wing fanatic. You know, it's like, I just, I can't stand it coming from either direction. Yeah. I can't stand that kind of, yeah. Like the eco fascist. I'm like, Hey, let's, it might not be. It might be a dude who knows a lot about heavy metals. Yeah, and it's. <laughs> I mean, that's who it is. I mean, and that's who it is, right? It's there. There are scientists out there who have spent their entire professional lives studying these issues, and and trying to arrive at some conclusion. I mean, they're they're uh, ostensibly performing a public service, right? And so to to sort of paint them into this corner and say they're they have this agenda and they're attempting to wipe out hunting as we know it it's just not a very one of the things you run into that also though is unfortunately the biologists in the end aren't ultimately the ones making the laws yeah right so there are people that may or may not know as much about those issues that don't spend their whole life just investing everything in whatever that issue is then you got some natural resources committee that spends 30 minutes on something and says you know yeah whatever done pound the gavel a couple guys come in and present to them and and that's and, it. And they vote along party lines anyways in some in some respects. <laughs> right. Now, like both my brothers are ecologists, okay? They like did biology and went into ecology specifically. You know, and they operate under like a, what seems to be like a scientific version of the Hippocratic Oath. I don't know the Hippocratic Oath, but like doctors take it, right? And they like pledge to do no harm. Yeah, to do no harm. Yeah. When they're researching something and they research a lot of things um each of them one deals with aquatic invertebrates and fish more and one deals with plant ecosystems more um but they'll be telling about something they're looking into 
cause and effect, causal relationships, whatever. Could be with environmental pollutants. Could be with one, one of my brothers right now is working on uh, why answers to why it's hard to get sagebrush and other plants to come back after when you're doing coal mine remediation. So you do a coal, a, a surface coal mine, and then it's, you're obligated then to bring the land back to some usable form. They find that it's very difficult to reestablish plant communities, certain plant communities. You More get, difficult than if the coal mine would or wouldn't have been there. That's what they're no, looking like, for. No, like to get it back to the way you left it. Right. What if, okay. there wasn't, what if there wasn't a coal mine and they just went and it was just some other parcel of land that they did something with and now they have to you know, bring that back? I don't know. Okay. He'd probably be able to answer that, but okay. that's what he's working okay. on. That's what he's working because on. Because when they do a coal mine, they, you, you're bonding it, right? So right. you're putting down a, a chunk of money that's held by a governing agency and it gets given back to you once your remediation is done. So you've done the mine, you bring topsoil back in, reestablish plant community, and it's supposed to be, you know, as good or better. And the regulations used to be less strict. Let's say you used to be able to just do grass. Okay. And it was easy to do that. Um, now in certain areas they're like, you know, sagebrush is, is something we're, we're losing. Like we're losing acreage of sagebrush at an alarming rate. Um, now, when people do coal mine remediation, where you've tore up a, sh- a community, a shrub community that contains like sagebrush or other things, rabbit brush, buck brush, and part of your task is like, okay, after the mining's done, it's going to go back to a sagebrush community. Very difficult to get that to happen. Okay, so he he works on that. Another brother of mine uh, works on a lot of issues having to do with uh, anadromous fish. So water quality things, climate change issues. And they'll be working on something. I'm like, well, what do you hope happens? Like, what do you hope you find out? They don't think of it that way. It's like, I, I, that's not my job isn't to have a hope about what happens. Or I don't hope that it's caused by this or hope that it's caused by that. My job is just to try to answer, like, what is the issue? Right. It would completely ruin the science if they did. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I think there are a lot of people out there working on things who aren't like, I know how to get them hunters. Yeah. Interest I'll, groups have hopes. I'll prove, yeah, <laughs> but they don't. They're like, I'm right. here. To, I'm trying to, in the best way possible, deliver you factual information that policymakers can then use to twist and turn however they want to get their policy yeah. through. <laughs> I don't think that's their hope. Their hope no, is to no, tell no, you. Their hope is that I, I, I can yeah. tell you this. Yeah, like my brother Dane did a bunch of my. He did a bunch of work out at Bristol Bay. Stuff having to do with Pebble Mine. No one asked him, like, hey, dude, what do you think about Pebble Mine? Do you like it or not? He, he wouldn't even go near that topic. Yeah. But the person that But people say, like, what lives, in, what, lives in, what lives in this river? I can tell you what lives in that river. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you what I think about Pebble Mine. I'll damn sure tell you that his, this, this, and this, and this is in that river. Do these things, you know, how do they respond to certain impacts? I'll try to spell that out and tell it to you, but I'm not going to tell you what I think about the mine. It's not my job. My job is to give you information. And hope that it gets, you know, used in a sensible way. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, r- recognizing that, it's not to say that um, people don't bring their own, bi- I mean, science certainly is shaped by a certain, bi- like it's a certain type of person that's going to follow that path and become a biologist. So they probably do, you know, it's, it's, it's less likely that someone who hates the natural world is going to become an ecologist, right? And so yeah. there are certain... There are certain larger uh, biases, but um, to recognize those maybe biases or, or 
the predisposition of, of, you know, people like your brother, um, isn't to just throw it all out the window. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a middle ground and I think that's, um, yeah, it's too, too often people say either the science is purely objective or it's purely biased. And I think like you can recognize that it's, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. I would think that, like you said, like they both got into what they do cause they like, they grew up hunting and fishing. Mm-hmm. And it introduced them to the natural world, but they'll always have that perspective. Mm-hmm. And they, they still hunt and fish. You know, you could have, they could be sitting next to someone at a desk who grew up because their parents like to hang out at national parks and were big Sierra Club folks. And they might have a purely antagonistic feeling toward hunting and fishing, mm-hmm. right? That they're like, they believe in like passive involvement with the natural world. Like we're not out there as players on it. Um, Fundamentally, they're going to look at stuff different, differently. Doesn't mean when you put your, if you're a biologist, when you put your biologist hat on, that you don't have to set those things aside and focus on what's factual. But right? I think it's probably very difficult to. Yeah, I'm sure it is. It is, but I think right along with that oath, most of the scientists, you know, my, my wife included, like they're they're always open to being proven wrong. Like, it's okay, you know, for their research and stuff to be done. And even though you said those things, yeah, these things are, like you said with the river, like, yes, this stuff in this river is doing this, this, and this, and this. If someone else redid the research and put it in a different way and, you know, had a different control group and disproved it, your brother would be like, oh, yes, you opened my mind and let's move forward, you know, so... That's why I'm, that's why my credit has man, to be given there to that the fact that they're open to that change. And yeah, because human like, knowledge did it once. That's yeah. it. You know, human knowledge is an ongoing process. Yeah. That's why my old man would get so frustrated with ideas of human evolution or the African diaspora because people would be like, oh, you know, they found a new thing to sort of rewrite. See, see, that's why none of this matters because they used to say this. Now they say that. I'm like, yes. No one ever said, no one ever wrote down the definitive answer that will last all time, right? It's just, you're just adding bits of knowledge as you go along, and it's a dynamic, changing picture. In my own lifetime, like, I just have a personal curiosity about the peopling of the new world, right? So, who are the first people to show up in the new world, in North America? When did they get here? How'd they get here? Right? My understanding of that in my own lifetime has changed dramatically. Still kind of the basic story, but I never fell in love with one explanation. I just kind of follow what people are thinking. Rather than feeling frustrated by the fact that it changes all the time, it just like makes it feel like an engaging process. Yeah. You know? But some people do really fall in love with a a version. And they're antagonistic toward a new version. Which could be my buddy, the lead guy. <laughs> yeah, well, all of us have you know, read up on this subject, and it just really doesn't seem like there's a lot out there. And so I think that's kind of nice, this, the Oregon stuff that, that uh, our biologist friend shared with us. At least that's current, you know? That's in 2016. They're doing some work on that, you know? Yeah. So hopefully we'll know more soon. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm shooting non-toxic at waterfall, and in the meantime, I'm shooting... Uh, Toxic? No, I don't call it. No. <laughs> shoot jacketed bullets, man. I shoot jacketed bullets. Do you guys make any uh, lead knives at bench knife? Bench knife? <laughs> no, we don't. We, we don't make any. I can't say that we don't. That there's not lead in, in our products. I, I I don't know. You know, if I can speak to that. You don't feed them. We don't have feed the knives. Lead, the we, don't, we don't make toxic. 
We don't intentionally make toxic lead knives. No, no. You know what you were telling me? This changed subject a little bit. I was asking why bench may never make. Uh, why you guys don't do fillet knives? Explain that. So, or like, like, like we, what's up with the right. fillet knife? So, so we we have looked at it, and we actually used to have this line called Red Glass that everybody hated because it was an import line, and they're like, "What the you know? After you guys doing this, like you guys are American, an American made knife company, and that's what makes you great, right?" So we we sort of did away with that. But those fillet knives were always you know, they're kind of coveted. People like, "Oh yeah, you know, those old Red Glass fillet knives laying around," be, and we were able to make fillet knives then because they were forty five dollars, and, and there seems to be, I mean. When we make products the way Benchmade makes products, we make products and we shoot for like maximum performance, right? So, so we're using laser cutters to cut steels because we're using steels that are too hard to stamp, and and everything that we're shooting for is all to maximize value, like at a high level to the end user. So then we try to figure out how to manufacture it, and because we look at things from a from a value and a performance standpoint, and then figure out the manufacturing, the costs go way up. And with fillet knives, they seem to be uh, more of a disposable uh, item, you know. They're like people don't want to pay generally more than seventy five dollars is a lot. Why for a is that? Though? I don't. Well, I was a. I spent a few years in Bristol Bay as a fishing guide, and and we had lots of fillet knives on the fillet table. And you know, you you're cutting fish, and then you just rip them through. Uh, not even like with reckless abandon, pretty much just yeah. rip them through a sharpener, and then you get back to fillet and fish, and you're you know. There's guts and parts flying everywhere, and and it's just not a fillet knife. Isn't something that has this like uh, you have an affinity for it's yeah. just like this I gnarly tool way, yeah. yeah you feel the same way most people do and so we have to also be conscientious of like this is the reason we make them is for maximum performance and if people don't want that mm. they're not willing to pay that price for it then there's no reason for us to make it because if we do it's just going to flop Hmm. So no one's going to buy a $200 fillet knife. I'm not saying nobody's yeah, going to buy a $200 fillet knife, but there are a lot more people that would buy other knives that we could make that like some of our other hunting products that they would be interested in. Uh, and so we have to, we also have, you know, like, you know, limited capacity in our factory. So we have to focus on the things that we know people are going to, to really widely adopt or accept. Not that we don't make specialized products, but yeah, as a kid and still today, um, or, you know, as a kid, I filleted thousands. I mean, I'm not exact. I mean, literally thousands of perch and bluegills right. with those Rapala. Yeah, with a little soft, it's like a yeah. pine handle yeah. with Buy- like some kind of lacquer on it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I still own one. By volume, Rapala, like fillet knives, one of the biggest selling knives still to this day. Period. Rapala fillet knives. Yeah, they're they were next to nothing. We'd buy the one that had like a little short, I don't know, like a six inch blade on it. Yeah, yep. and it was just like the go to perch knife. I later, when I got married, someone gave me a a Wustoff, I think fillet knife, which I didn't like because it's too whippy. Hmm. You like a little more backbone. In your yeah, I yeah. generally fillet fish with a eight inch boning knife. You know, like those Victor Knox. It's almost like a... has like scoops in it. Almost like a disposable kind of knife, you know? Yeah. Yep. But yeah, flay fish with those. But I don't know why. Yeah, but then with hunting knives, it is true. Like with hunting knives, I'm real particular. But with flay knives, I don't know. But I always thought maybe because no one made a souped up flay knife. Well, also you're leaving like your flay knife out on the cleaning table and, you know, hosing it off and this and that. I feel like it's a way more utilitarian you know, when you're done cleaning fish, spray off the table, push all the knives to the side. Yeah, people, the sharpener, or walk away. Yeah, you don't <laughs> fetishize 
Like, you don't fetishize flay knife. Yeah. No one ever gives you a flay knife and be like, see that? That was my grandpa's flay knife. <laughs> but they're like, that was my grandpa's hunting knife. You're like, damn! And there's, knife, see that. <laughs> there's knife companies that are good at doing that. Really? Right? I mean, you have to be, you have to understand, like, what are we good at? To, you know, like, like uh, Dexter Russell. They make the white handled ones. That's you know, what I was actually talking right, about. Dexter Russell. Yeah, that's that's kind of what, what yeah. I figured. So, so. But that, those guys, those are like combined, right? What do you mean combined? Like, isn't Dexter, is Dexter Russell and Force, are they the same company? Oh, and sure. to make like and the food service. I don't. I don't know. I don't okay. have an answer to that. So they make a very similar product. They do make though. similar oh, products, okay. but the Forstners are black handle. The Dexter Russells are white handle. Yeah. Okay. And, and guides. I, I was, yeah, I was conflating those two. Yeah. Like just food service. Right. And, and guides nice. and guides talk about all. Oh, my boat knife. You know, most most guys in their boat they'll have like a boat knife. But where does their boat knife go? It's like in the gunnel of their sled. Yeah. The thing is sliding back and forth, just getting hammered. It's ter- it, They take terrible care of it, and they will tell you like I. You guys got any, like, I just had one of my buddies the other day, like, I need a boat knife. I'm like, I don't really have a boat knife. I've got, like, D2 <laughs> steels. and We've got steels that are, like, I need a knife I can just throw in my gunnel. And, you know, when I'm out in buoy 10 in the salt water, it's just like, you know, I can do whatever. I can cut herring. And it's like, dude, that, that knife, the blade is going to rust off in, like, yeah. you know, three seconds if you do that. And so they want a knife that costs $45 that has really high chromium, you know, and, and not the... And or chrome, it doesn't have all the like high carbon in it because that type of knife just turns to rust when you get it in a corrosive environment. So that's part of it too, right? It's like the one they're beating the junk out of the knives too. The steels that are generally more costly that are going to perform better typically have high level, levels of carbon yep. in them, and so they they don't do well in corrosive environments anyways. Why do why is it so hard to make knives that love salt water? Uh, well, if you're talking about a fixed blade knife, uh, it's it's all to do. And I'm not a metallurgist, but it has everything to do with the chemistry of the of the steel itself, like the chemical makeup. We do actually have a steel that we get uh, from an Austrian manufacturer called N680, uh, that it, which is, I guess, sort of irrelevant what the number is. But N680 has a has a really high content of the types of materials in the chemical makeup that allow for non-corrosive properties in the steel. Now, the trade-off is typically if you drive up the anti-corrosive properties in a blade, you will lose edge edge performance. Oh, okay. Right. So it sounds like, yeah, because like stainless, like no one ever makes a knife that's just like, is that behaves like stainless steel. Right. So our hardest steels are not stainless at all. Like we have to, you have to coat them, or you have to put certain finishes on them. And people, I mean, yeah, the people have to take care of the blades. Now we also have semi-stainless steels, and we do have like S30V that's in all of these um, hunting knives, the hunt knives. That particular steel actually has a really great balance between corrosion resistance and edge retention and durability. But it will still, I mean, like you can't just like gut an elk, you know, carve up a, a deer with it, you know, quarter or something out and throw it in your pack and not think about it for the next hunting, until the next hunting season yeah. and pull it out and expect that the blade's not going to have corroded when you left blood all over it, right? You gotta, you still have to take care of it. There are some super steels like another bowler steel called M390 that is very expensive, but it, it actually has a really interesting, uh, there's a really interesting ability in that steel because of the makeup of it to offer both corrosion resistance at a high level and edge performance. So there are some, I mean, they make custom steels just for cutlery and, and even metal uh, manufacturing companies like S30V and these hunt knives. That is a steel that was specifically designed for cutlery. Like, cut, like home cutlery? 
Or you mean a cutter, any kind like, of like sports cutlery. Oh, yeah, yep. gotcha. Yep. Yeah, that's, that, there's a difference between those two, right? We think about our products in specialty knife, in the specialty knife market. That typically does not include the culinary yep. market. Most culinary products are going to be uh, relatively low carbon stainless, unless you get into like, the Japanese like sushi knives. Those are I got I got a souped up one of those. You do. Yeah, those are awesome. That my wife always threatens to throw away because an old girlfriend gave it to me. But um, <laughs> from Japan. But if you cut a lime with that thing, like let's say you cut a lime or a tomato and don't wipe the blade, yeah. and let the blade sit there for ten minutes, it's gonna rust. Yeah, well, yeah. it turns the colors. Yep. You know. Yeah. But you can sharpen that thing like nut shape and sharp. Yeah. I mean. Easily, you know, and that's like I used to always think that just having a knife that uh would sharpen easy is the best because I like to sharpen knives. But then you meet guys like I've cut up five elk with my knife and it never got dull. There's something you said for that, but I'm always worried that guy will never get it sharp again. What happens? Yeah, what happens to that guy when he doesn't get it sharp? It, you know, enough or it doesn't, because there's also something to keeping your edge sharp that helps your edge stay yeah. sharp. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, right, so you know that. So what happens to that guy when he's on his sixth elk and he's halfway through it <laughs> and all of a sudden the knife's not sharp anymore? So there's a, I like to keep, you know, S30V, again, offers a really great balance between everything, and you can put an edge on it in the field with a carbide, you know, one of those carbide sharpeners with the little V, V-notch jaws in them, enough to get you through. Uh, but it's... It's good to carry like a, a knife that will do both. You have a really hard. I, most people carry multiple knives. Good to have one with a really strong edge performing edge retention type steel, and then maybe one that's a little easier to sharpen in case you, you for some reason lose that. Or that's you, what I do is I carry right. around like when, when I'm on a hunt, like a big game hunt. I carry in my pack my knife that only touches hide and meat. Right. Like I don't cut cheese with it and whittle sticks with yeah. it and like that's not your pocket knife. Yeah, right. it's like it's just that. It's like it's for that. If I don't kill something, it never comes out of my pack. Right. And then I got like a knife in my pocket or knife somewhere, which is my just like you know my messing around thing. And it's and it's worth mentioning also for our steels because we have such hard steels that can be. I mean, you can do two elk, two deer, whatever with one blade. We also have this really cool program called Life Sharp, where somebody even if they Really, I mean, honestly, that's what I was surprised by. You can just send it. Yeah, you can just send it in, and and our team there. We have this product services team, super expert technicians. It doesn't matter if it's a thirty-year-old benchmade or a brand new one; they'll disassemble the whole thing, make sure they fix everything, tune it to optimal performance, put an edge back on it, and send it back to you. It's free service. Who pays the shipping? Benchmade pays the shipping. Not, I mean, not to get it to us. They ship it back, but we'll ship it back and pay the shipping. Yeah. That's sweet. What's yeah. the turnaround time? Uh, right now, last I checked, the turnaround time, time was running three days. Really? Yeah. I mean, three days in our facility, right? So there's yeah. shipping and then shipping no, back. With but, big right. week, maybe. Yeah. You guys just see some messed up stuff rolling through oh, there, probably yeah. not. Crazy stuff, especially a lot of military knives. I was looking at one yesterday that a guy had. He was it was a Navy diver, and he was down cutting rope out of a propeller, and somebody turned the engine on, and it sucked the knife into the prop, and the knife is just. I, I don't know how his hand it wasn't ripped off. Still got chunks of hand. Uh, I have no idea. But the knife is like it's just bent in half. The scales are all blown off of it. And typically, what our product services team will do when they get a knife like that, it. yeah, they'll you'll say, you know, well, if we can keep the knife, you know, so we have the cool story or whatever. They'll just you know, send a new one out. You know, you know the company OR. It's ba- they're, yeah, they're, outdoor research. Yeah. yeah, I was down there one day. I used to have a friend of a friend that was working there, and we were down there monkeying around, and they got this wall of shame, which is like returns they've had. 
And one of the things is like a guy had a pair of gloves. You could tell he had for a million years because they're just like full of holes and worn out. And then he burned them in a fire. <laughs> so it's like you could tell like that they were really messed up. Then he burned them in a fire and he like made a return on them, you know. And they gave him new. He's like, what's with these things? Yeah, I just threw them in the fire for a while. Yeah. They, <laughs> no, they, they said he sent him a new pair, but just like insane stuff that people try to return. You know, they have a wall of shame at uh, at loophole that I was looking at. Uh, they're also in Portland, so go there sometimes to take returns in or you know look look around at new products and uh i was looking at this wall of shame and there's this scope on the wall and it's all blasted and it's got a note with it that they frame that says let brother-in-law borrow scope brother-in-law dropped scope and broke it never letting brother-in-law borrow scope again <laughs> <laughs> going back to school too yes um who like who do you guys mainly what's the what's your main clientele? Uh so our main clientele as far are you talking about like as far as occupation or just as far as people? Yeah, like what are the main dudes? Like do you guys sell more to law enforcement and military, more to just dudes who want a knife to carry around for just general cut and stuff up? Or? I, I think that people arrive at a certain a level of performance expectation in their products, regardless sort of of what walk of life they're in. Because mm-hmm. yeah, we service people at all, fire EMS, military, hunters, law enforcement, people that are just general sports cutlery enthusiasts, collectors. We, That's a term, like, sports cutlery enthusiasts. <laughs> right, or collectors, right? <laughs> magazine for yeah. that. Well, there's a whole industry. There's a whole industry Yeah, there is a magazine people. for that. Blade Magazine. Blade right? Magazine, yeah. yep, yep. And Knives Illustrated. I and mean, it's a whole industry. We have a whole trade show dedicated to it. It's all custom knife uh, makers, but I guess to answer your question in, in sort of a roundabout way is that we make knives for people that want to buy knives that are at the at the peak performance and maximum value that they can get from a manufactured knife. You know, and and we sort of bridge the gap between custom and manufactured. There's a whole like world of garage shop type custom knife makers that make really exquisite products, like you know, like those even those uh, like your the the knife that you have, the sushi knife, right? Some yeah. of those knives can be thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. You know, there's a whole world of people that just collect these, but not everybody can afford those. And even the garage custom guys, it takes them, they have three-year wait lists for some of their products. Well, we're able, because our owner originated in the custom knife world, but then found this affinity and knack for manufacturing, he started working with custom knife designers to bring custom knives to a manufactured level at the at the same performance, but then to make it accessible to more of the masses. Yeah. Yeah. Are you guys, you guys still owned by like a family, right? Yeah, the Diaz's family. Yeah. Who started it out? Started it out, yeah. And, when did and, they do, when did they start? Uh, the Benchmade was founded in 1987. So the next year is our 30th anniversary. Founded when? At 1987. Really? Yeah. God, I guess it was long ago. Well, they, there was a company before that. So like in around 1973, there was another company that made mostly ballet songs or butterfly knives. That's where the butterfly in our logo comes oh, from. Oh, right? Right, because our, our owner, the uh, Les Diasis, and, and the family ownership, uh, Les is Filipino. And butterfly knives are Filipino knives, and he's like calls himself unemployable, and he just like he's a he's just an entrepreneur at heart, and he he's like you know went to a gun and knife show because he he loved that stuff, and he's kicking around, he's talking to these custom knife guys, and he's like, you guys can you know like work out of your garage, you can live anywhere you want, he's like this is the best thing I've ever heard of, and it's like it was perfect for me, so he started getting into custom knives mostly through that experience and wanting to find something he could do for himself, and he just saw the 
tremendous value that could be provided by a well-made butterfly knife. Nobody made good ones. They were all, you know, like basically cobbled together. And so yeah, we made, always used to buy them at flea markets. Right. Like, we'd make our own nunchucks. Right. Or no, what's that word? What is that word? Anyways, no, we call them. We always thought they were nunchucks. Nun, nunchuck, right? Uh, yeah, we'd like buy right. shitty butterfly knives and make nunchucks. <laughs> That's all. Like, right. sometimes we'd spend weeks doing right. nothing but that. So, <laughs> he, he, so he 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 worked with custom knife designers to make beautiful, well-executed butterfly knives, which actually is a really great design because the two handles prevent the blade from going either direction. And so if you make it with tight tolerances, it's a folding knife that basically is as rigid as a fixed-blade knife when it's Yeah, but it's like a stiletto. It's meant for, like, knife fight. Uh, Yeah, I mean, originally... That's my impression. I think originally butterfly knives uh, had martial arts, sort of a martial arts history like like nunchucks behind them, yeah. So you guys still making you guys still make a butterfly knife? We do, really. We do. The, we have the Does it sell. Uh, it sells like crazy, and we used to make <laughs> yeah, and we used and they're four hundred dollars. We used to make Whoa, really. I'd like to yeah. get my hands on a four hundred dollar yeah. butterfly yeah. knife. Yeah. I might know a guy. <laughs> the the uh, uh, we made our what's like it our, called? Uh, it just has a number. So we make it's we make the sixty two, the sixty seven, and uh, and they're just different blade variants. But who's buying them? Mostly when you get into the butterfly knives, those are collectors, people that are into like like real sort of uh, key uh, niche or niche, I should say, type cutlery products. Man, I'm going to start just carrying one, man. When yeah. someone asks me to cut something, I'm like, but, ripping but that thing all around. Some people are just butterfly knife lovers, too. I mean, they just appreciate the design. You can flip them around. You ever, you ever got a deer with a butterfly knife? I have never got a deer with a butterfly knife, but I was just looking at one. I was trying to show it to my wife last night and how I thought it could have been a good hunting knife, and she's like, I don't care what you're talking about right now. <laughs> <laughs> Does the classic design have an edge on both sides? Uh, you know what? That's a good question. I, the one, The most classic design i've seen from us is this blades called the weehawk and no it's a single edge but we also have these crazy blades called crisp blades that look wavy and they're sharpened on both sides it, what i will tell you is that if you're like the master of the butterfly knife then it's kind of like faux pas almost to use a single sided. you use a double sided yeah man yeah yeah and, cut both ways oh man. and there's dudes that are throwing them up and catching them behind their back and that's what crazy. i'm gonna be like when yeah. i'm hunting yeah next time i come <laughs> see you i'm expecting this from you when i send you a butterfly do knife. they got a pocket clip on them uh some some do usually not Usually they do not have a pocket clip. They'll come with a, with like a sheath. You got to be quicker on the draw than you know yeah. getting it out of your pocket. <laughs> I had no idea. So is it in the Benchmade catalog? Yeah, yeah, it's in the Benchmade catalog. We've got uh, we actually have two two sort of separate families of butterfly or ballet song knives. One that is more technologically uh, advanced materials wise. It has like some stacked handles and some other things, and then one that's more classic with with like a machine stainless handles. Gotcha. Yeah. So, how long have you guys had the? How many years has it been that you've had the like an actual hunting focused line of knives out? Since we've had an actual like core hunting line, it's only been three years. We we've spent a lot of time. I should I should also say there's a caveat with that. We've almost always had hunting knives in the line, and we spent a lot of time trying different approaches to I mean, like knives, knives that were like great that, that were perfectly applicable to hunting or yeah or even like knives called the bird and trout knife or i mean yeah, like yeah. like actual hunting knives but the hunt series is our first ever like fully vested knife series like a full line of knives just specifically applied to hunting man i've had a helix sleep mattress for years and man that thing is nice 
the Helix lineup, it's just comfortable. It feels good. And you don't get all like, it's not all like hot and sticky in the summertime. It's not cold in the winter. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released Helix Elite Collection, a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. And your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door free of charge. Helix knows there's no better way to test out a mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash eater and use code HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Meal prepping and thinking about what's for dinner all the time can be a real stressor. Well, using ButcherBox helps relieve that stress. With ButcherBox, you're always prepared with good quality meat in the freezer. It's the ultimate convenience with custom curated boxes shipped right to your door with free shipping, which means fewer trips to the grocery store. It's hard to find the same value at the store because what store can you go to where you're going to get free protein for a whole year alongside your order? Plus, they have a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive member deals, and they make it even easier on you with recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of weeknight meal essentials. Three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater and use code meat eater to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. So when you have like the, the steep country, I'm actually holding you on these right now, how did it come to be that... uh? How did, like, why? I don't know how to ask this. It's all over in magazines. Best this, best that. Is that, like, honest? That, or do you submit to those kind of things? 
You mean like oh, great, oh, oh, new, oh, yeah. great new gear like items? Like best of the best or, yeah, or yeah. whatever? So that knife tore it up. So field. I feel like every magazine you opened up had that knife in it. We do very little paid print advertising. And I love saying this because hopefully this will mean that a lot of the print advertisers won't call me and solicit my <laughs> business. But I somehow doubt that that's true. We do, we do a very little print advertising. Most of what we invest our money in is back into product technologies. So typically it's kind of like a biologist. I, I this is not always true, but like with a biologist, you have to like come from a place of factual science or you're not credible anymore. For, for people that are doing gear reviews, if you're letting advertising bias your gear reviews, people eventually will see that and yeah. you'll no longer be credible at reviewing equipment, right? And, and then you'll lose everything. So usually with a magazine, there is no connection, at least this is what they tell you. If I had like tried to call an advertiser and say, hey, you're advertising a Gerber knife, you're, you're, you gave a good review to a Gerber knife, and I just placed a full-page ad in that month's issue, that's BS, you know, they would say. You know, we don't even talk to those people. The editorial people are totally different from the yeah. advertising department, and they do that because otherwise the publication loses credibility. And do you think that's true? Because I feel like I can just point in every single magazine. Not and, always. Yeah. Not always. But like, like Field and Stream, Best of the Best, we don't advertise in Field and Stream. Never right. have. And oh, really? We, and we've won Best of the Best three, three times in the, I think, three times in the last five years. Yeah, and that's not because... And you're not buying... No, no. It's not because we're paying for advertising. That's not what they call advertorial. So yeah, there's also yeah. advertorial, right, where you're right. paying for the editorial. That's a cool knife. Yep. I think it says a lot about you too, and the product that the sheath seems well thought out, and it seems solid. We've spent a lot of time on that in the last few years. We the sheath has been an afterthought for us because we mostly were a folding knife company, ballet songs and things. So there was a learning curve over the last ten years. We started to get more into fixed blades to understand, like in a fixed blade, the sheath is as it's as important as the as the knife itself. What kind of knife you got, Randall? Well, I got a bench made now. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you have before that? Uh, you know, I I have like a just a sorry to say I have like a little Gerber uh, pocket folder that yeah. I'll carry. Um, and you don't then, kill anything anyway. Yeah. Well, and then I have the Havlon. <laughs> I have the Havlon tucked away in the pack, yeah. and that doesn't just get as case. much use as uh, <laughs> as the rope and cheese knife. Yeah, yeah. but no, it's. I mean, I. Uh, yeah, I adopted sort of the, the the and and now I have one of the other like the razor's edge or whatever it is. But I like the is I that like the outdoor edge or the outdoor edge. Yeah, yeah. I like the, like a fixed blade with a blade yeah. that goes in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's got more of a a curved. Yeah, more of yeah. a traditional radius right, than right. the Avalon for, for caping and stuff like yeah. that. I like that. But yeah, I mean, I'm 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 uh, I sort of got into the replaceable blades because I never. Uh, Never got good at sharpening my own. <laughs> yeah, I spent, you know, cause growing up like fur trap, yeah. and I spent a lot of time sharpening. Through, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said for replaceable ones. Mm-hmm. One thing a guy said to me that weighed on me a little bit later on was he's like he's talking about just like disposable culture. Yeah, and at first I kind of dismissed it, but yeah. after a while I'm like, God, you know, there is like he's like, whatever happened to like having a thing that you just have and you learn how to take care right. of it, and, and like have, the, the and whole world is. Memories associated. Yeah, with it. Like, that was kind of knife, and that's that's sort of how I felt about the the Havlon. I don't think I'm ever going to look at that Havlon and say like a lot of good memories with this thing, you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> my dad, uh, my dad used to have this joke where he'd say like he had this old hatchet. He's yeah. like, yeah, it's my great grandfather's hatchet. It's had just had three new heads and uh-huh. four new handles. <laughs> <laughs> so now, explain what you're in town for, Randall. 
Um, I'm here for the like uh, we're in Seattle. Randall's in Seattle. Doesn't live here. Lives in Montana. Yeah. So I'm here for the uh, American Society for Environmental History, the ASCH National Conference. Are you presenting anything? Nope. Um, just here to listen. I'm just here to listen and to meet people, shake hands, um, and uh, listen to papers and. But you wind get- up putting some papers in a magazine. I mean that's that's the idea is hopefully I can solicit some I, I work as an editor um and so I'm I'm looking for um scholars out there that are doing interesting research and try to solicit some uh manuscript submissions that hopefully we can publish. You're paying top dollar. <laughs> uh no, it's more of a charity thing. <laughs> you're just gonna ask Get them some good exposure. Yeah. I mean So give give me a for instance of something you're gonna go watch, like a presentation. Um you know, there's actually one panel that I'm sort of interested in, and I don't know that it's necessarily for uh, – um, it's it's more for personal interest than professional interest because I don't know that we'd really publish any of these. But there there's a panel on um, uh, sort of the, the imposition of trapping regulations on um, indigenous communities in, in uh, Canada. Oh, and, I'd, like, and I'd sort of, like to go and, sit yeah, in on that. Yeah, so, so um, there are a couple – uh, and I'm not going to really – I've sort of skimmed the program a couple of times and just tried to get an idea of what panels I want to sit in on. But there's a couple of papers about, um, yeah, sort of the changing uh, politics and regulation of trapping um, in, I think, like BC and That's some other areas. That's fascinating. So, yeah. And, and there's – And the imposition is being like the effects of those regulations on them? Um I don't. I don't really know. All I've seen is like the titles of the papers, um, but they're, they're sort of looking at um, how this affects. I'm, I would imagine, and here I'm sort of just speculating, but um, you know, this is a. These are practices and behaviors and cultures that have existed for <laughs> a very, very long time, and uh, the uh, the way that they they resisted or adapted. Um, the imposition, you know, of of various regulations on these practices. Yeah, that'd so, be interesting. I don't know. Yeah, so there's a lot of and and there's there's scholars working um, in all over the place. So it's you know they're global topics. They're um, panels that are specific to North America, regions of North America. But it's it's sort of the full spectrum. And then there are also various workshops and different things like that. So um, it should be a fun, interesting. A uh, few days, but it's these these uh, every sort of subfield of history has its own national conference every year, and so it's a chance for people that are spread out across um, various universities. You know, each each you know certain departments are larger than others, but you know at a at a school like the University of Montana, say there's one uh, Russian historian and there's uh, one environmental historian, and so. The national conferences allow these people that are working on uh, topics that speak to one another to all gather in one place and, and share ideas and see sort of what their colleagues out there are working yeah. on. Whatever so, interest, yeah. Right. Yeah. Is there is there certain research that you look for, or like specifically that you're hoping for out of this that you'll publish? Not necessarily. Um, just topics relevant to uh, Western history, Montana history, environmental history. So. Um, sort of seeing what's out there and, and meeting people. And then there are a lot of people from um, various presses that are there um, to look for book manuscripts or to meet people. So it's also sort of there's that element to it as well. So you're going to do some hardcore hobnobbing. 
Yeah, pretty much. I got all the business cards lined up. You know what's funny <laughs> about traffic regulations? This spring in April, we're going uh, to Wyoming for some spring beaver action. Oh, yeah. And um, there's a reciprocity thing between the states with trapping. For instance, Montana, um, you can't trap any – a non-resident cannot get a trapping license in Montana to trap beaver, for instance, like fur bears. Okay, You can go trap coyotes, bobcats, like various predators, but you can't trap what they have listed as fur bears, like muskrat, mink, river otter, beaver. Um, so what a lot of states will do, like let's say you're in a state that is open to non-resident trappers. But since Montana doesn't allow non-residents, they won't let someone from Montana buy a license in their state. Mm-hmm. Okay, So Wyoming is open to any non-resident coming from a state that's in turn open to Wyoming. Even though Washington has like some draconian trapping regulations, like trapping's basically illegal because they've outlawed all the tools of the trade without actually outlawing the practice. Mm-hmm. So you can't use counter bears, you can't use footholds, you can't use snares. The, However, it's legal. Yeah. Right? So you look like, which made the trap, like the trapping regulations here are kind of ridiculous because like everything's like open for a really long time. You know, yeah. and, they, and they only like, up, they don't like barely even update the regulations. The regulations are basically like, go ahead, bro. Just can't use traps. <laughs> <laughs> because you're not going to like, you can don't use live traps. You know what I mean? So I'm filling out this form for Wyoming, getting my Wyoming, you know, beaver trapping license. And I'm filling out this form. And it's like, they're always like, um, are you allowed to trap X? And it's like, yes. Um, are non-residents allowed to trap X? And it's like, it's all like, yes, 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 yes. And I almost wanted to put a note on there being like, well, actually, no, <laughs> but let's just say yes. Theoretically. And I sent it in and I got my, uh, I, I was accepted and got my Wyoming, <laughs> got my Wyoming fur harvester. You're going to get a letter back from Wyoming. It says you can come hunt, but you can't use traps. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, bro. Yeah, welcome. Come get some beaver, but just keep mine. You can't use any, yeah, any of the tools that go with traveling. I never thought of the impact on indigenous people. And people tend to be more sensitive to that than they do, um, you know, yeah. like tradi- other people who have traditional use practices. And yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I really don't have any um, specific or detailed knowledge about how it works in Canada. You haven't gone to the conference yet. Yeah, well, hopefully I'll be able to tell you a bit more in a couple of days. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, the Canadian side of things is something of a mystery to me. I'm, I have more knowledge of uh, treaty rights and subsistence rights in the U.S. I'll tell you one interesting about a lot of areas in Canada is you have a registered line. Like you have a line, mm-hmm. the same way you might have a commercial fishing license, you know, mm-hmm. and you like sell, like you have a registered line, you can sell that line. Hmm. You know, when ice trap is just like, it's just honor system. Like you might be like, yeah, so-and-so works that area and, Nothing was actually preventing you from going out there. It would just be like an honor system that you did or did not go along with. But there, yeah, man, you get like a registered line. You buy a line off someone. I used to shop, like I used to sit there with magazines, like in the back of Trapper and Predator Caller magazine when I was a kid. You'd look in the classifieds, it'd be people selling trap lines. Huh. You know? And, um, what did one go for back then? I can't remember, but I remember like I would waste some of these guys' time by like writing <laughs> and asking for more information, and they'd send these just maps, you know, <laughs> basically a map of just like never-ending swamp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be hundreds of miles. You know, you buy a trap line, huh? Yeah, I always thought it's fine. Wild. Go, you know, go for it. So, anyhow, concluding thoughts, Yanni. 
Oh boy, can you go first? What uh, I'm, what's up with the hunt to eat? You didn't. We haven't talked about hunt to eat in a long time. No, we haven't. I we, meant to uh, wear my T-shirt today. Yanni's got one on. <laughs> All this kid wears is hunt to eat T-shirts. I can't tell if it's because he loves hunt to eat or if he just has a lot of the T-shirts. Trying to get the word both. Out <laughs> and if you, you have to wear your own product, um, yeah, we got How a tur- we, we have a to? we have a turkey shirt that I think goes live today. So, but not state affiliated. No, is this your first non-state affiliated shirt? No, we've got the first one was non-state. Up, affiliated. Yeah, we're up to like four or five now. I've been so. told to pass along word that we need an Ohio shirt. Mm. So, Oregon? Do you have an Oregon shirt? No, he won't make it till he hears from ten people. <laughs> I got ten people that can call you. <laughs> oh, Idaho is like going to be at the printers in the next week or so. By the time anybody hears this, it'll probably be live already. But uh, Washington, Idaho. Yeah, they should be live by the time this podcast airs. So how many states? Are we like, up to now? Yeah, by the time the podcast airs. Oh, boy. Maybe 10? Close to it's it. a long way to go. Yeah, we do. But you know what? You're adding t-shirts faster than we added states as a country. Yeah, You'll catch up eventually. Yeah. <laughs> and we, haven't sure. added, we haven't added one since the 50s. So. <laughs> All right. Do you, do you think you'll wind up doing Hawaii? Because we're going hunting Hawaii this year. Ooh, that'd be a good one. It's like a destination hunt spot. We find out like a lot of people buy Montana and Alaska, you know, because it's just like a dream hunt. Dream. You place sell a lot of those. Yeah. My brother the other day was wearing a hunt to eat Montana. I don't know where he got it. I didn't give it to him. Yeah, I know where he got it. Oh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I gave him two. He said, "Sweet, my two new favorite T-shirts." <laughs> um. So that's your concluding. No, that's not. That was my concluding thought. What's yours? Oh man, I'm gonna bring it back around to lead and just like like I said, I'm I'm I, I feel like the reason we're having this discussion is because there's just not enough research out there. So I'm hoping that now it's kind of coming back, and a lot of people are talking about it again. Someone's gonna get after it and do some more research because like I think we, we see that coming out of Oregon. Up, since you're bringing it back up, I'll bring it back up. I think we haven't brought up is just like efficacy, right? Mm-hmm. It's some things just work real well. Mm-hmm. It works real well. So it's it's like. I'm trying to weigh that out as well. What is the, like when you come in with, what is it going to say? What is it? What would it do to wound loss? You know, are you going to have a lot more wound loss as you dictate less effective ammunitions to people? So I, I found the statistics on this, at least for some, someone from us fish and wildlife basically had said that once they instituted the ban, there was a spike Yep. in self-reported wound loss. I read that. And then over time, it dropped back down, and now it's below what it was prior because people adapted. The yeah. They weren't taking yeah, 60 yeah, yeah. They taking 60 They're shooting shots. 40 yards instead. But of I don't believe, yeah. here's the thing. Here's, that gets into a whole other issue of science. Is it's very, I, I think that self-reported, yeah, very hard. Go around, do a little informal survey, <laughs> and ask all your bow hunting buddies. Right. What they think wound loss. What what's your wound loss rate? Yeah. You'll never get an honest answer. You'll never get an honest answer. Mm-hmm. Um I think that when guys fill that out, it's like, dude, I don't believe a thing. I mean, I'm sure some people probably do it, but people don't like to self incriminate. Now that it's against the law, I think people are like I think most people are full of it when it comes to wound loss rates when they report it. Right. So the the reporting might not be representative of reality, but the the change in reporting over time 
does give you some sense yeah. at least yeah. of the bigger picture. So, yeah, so everybody's yeah. probably not reporting totally honestly, but the way they do report, yeah, yeah, they, 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 yeah I saw that. I, I read that same thing. They saw a spike, yeah. right? And it wasn't a horrible spike. But they saw a it was spike like from twenty to twenty-five, near twenty-five percent, or something, something like whatever the numbers were, and then within a few years it dropped back down to 20 and then uh shortly after that it even dipped below sort of pre-band numbers so yeah as people adjusted well for waterfowl if you want the efficacy you can shoot the bismuth and tungsten costs quite a bit more and i wonder why we haven't seen a tungsten or bismuth cord hunting bullet yet i don't know i don't know if there's some reason for it or not that'd be good we gotta get a metallurgist out here yeah going that way with fishing tackle no, you mean non-lead? Yeah, that stuff hurts your teeth too bad, yeah. man. Like, I can bite lead sinkers all day long. Man, you give me a non-toxic sinker and I chew into that thing, dude, that hurts. Yeah, I'm I'm thread through, you know, thread through bullet weights when talking tungsten for the most part. I don't know about trying to bite down on a tungsten weight. That's ill-advised, I think. <laughs> and then steel shot shatters your teeth. Shat we bottom. used, I think it was tin. I want to say fly yeah. fishing, those green egg tin. ones. yeah. And uh, I actually liked those because they were so reusable. I felt like they I just got more use uh, out of them more than, malleable than, the, than the lead. They're less malleable, no, okay. which I think just, yeah, it just gave them longer life. They held yeah. their form better. Man, yeah. you're sitting about five feet from my little stash of uh, non-toxic sinkers back there. And I'll have to say, I was just fishing the other day, and that's not the one I grabbed. I grabbed the old stylers. <laughs> <laughs> A lot less expensive, too, the old style. I like to keep them in my mouth. Um, but you know what I find though? It's like, uh, I do catch myself. Like I don't like my kid messing with them. Mm. I don't like him. No, I don't like him pinching them down because teeth. Like I wore a groove into my teeth cutting monofilament and I probably like capped my tooth yeah. with lead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. My I got one. <laughs> and I started, then I switched to fluorocarbon and it's it like, you're like, dude, that's even harder. Yeah, yeah. Man. You gotta use a canine teeth for the Yeah, fluorocarbon's hard <laughs> on your teeth. Oh Yeah. Matt, what are your concluding thoughts? Oh, well, uh, it got stolen. I was going to bring it back to the to the lead versus copper issue. Uh, I suppose if I had a concluding thought on that, I just hope that whatever whatever decisions are made come from sound science and a good a good place a good place of uh, thoughtfulness and and in the best interest of conservation and not political party line. Yeah, yeah, not like. I don't like guns. Right. Therefore, I think the lead is toxic. Right. You know? And I, I like, conversely, I like guns. Therefore, lead can do no harm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think it should come from that either. Yeah. Randall, what's your concluding thought? <sighs> oh, man. I don't know. Uh, You're excited about this conference? <laughs> I'm excited about this conference. I'm intrigued by, uh, I want to meet someone who identifies w- as a self-professed sport culinary enthusiast. I like that. Uh, I'm still chewing on that one, but uh, I don't know. Sport cutlery. Sport, I'm sorry. Yeah. What did I say? Sport culinary. Culinary. Because I was saying, that's me, dude. Yeah. I'm, a, yeah, no. I'm a sport culinary enthusiast. Here with you, a sport cutlery enthusiast. Um, yeah. I don't know. When it comes to lead and steel, uh, I don't really hit enough birds for it to make a difference. So. <laughs> We we're just talking about all my uh, all my empty honey holes before we got started here. I don't. Yeah, we were talking about the the fear of losing your GPS, and Randall was just saying he'll switch GPS units with anybody. 
because he said it can't be any worse than what he's got. <laughs> I'd like to point out that I started shooting copper well before I ever thought about lead poisoning in my game meet because I saw the efficacy in the field as a guide. And I'd be like, what? You know, what? You know, someone would recover a bullet. I'd be like, oh, I've never seen that thing. What is that? Oh, it's the, you know, Barnes, yeah. you know, triple shot. I was like, wow. That thing hit that elk and just drilled him. And I know a lot of that has to do with shot placement. Where you hit. More of that has to do with shot placement than the bullet itself. But anyways, that's kind of what got me shooting those coppers. And it wasn't until later until, you know, someone was like, oh, you also get that a benefit of, you know, whatever. That's what I want. That's another thing that I talked about that, that came up in this, con- this, con- this uh, conversation was I said in some ways I feel like it's going to wind up being beyond the point not with lead shot for for upland birds and stuff mm-hmm. i was like in some ways i think it's the discussion about toxicity is beside the point because if you look at reloaders like if you look at the the, the avant-garde the cutting edge there's just a, a very i feel like there's a very definite shift going toward monolithic bullets don't you think i mean it's just like more and more people who don't give a shit about the lead issue are shooting solid. You don't feel that that's true? I don't know. I wouldn't say. You'd know that. better than me. If I'm wrong, tell me, because I feel like you know more about that stuff than I do. I think a lot of people like, especially I think out of all the monolithics, they like the Barnes because it's known to be an accurate bullet. You know, a lot of people just get good loads out of it that are, that are accurate loads. But I feel like it's, especially with the long range crowd, most of them, are, I don't think they are shooting monolithics. Right? Yeah, I think they're shooting lead core, um, especially with long range the bullet. A lot of times, upon impact, is moving slower, and so they need a bullet that fragments or you know pedals more at a lower velocity, which the monolithics don't do. That's what that's what I that was when I made the switch back to jacketed bullets. Was um, I shot a deer? With it was pretty far out. It was I, I feel like if I remember right, it was 460 yards, which is a long ways. Mm-hmm. I shot a deer, and he still continued running around, running does, and I'm like, I don't understand what just happened. And then eventually he got woozy and fell over. And when I went up to him, it looked like someone had taken a dowel, yeah, and punched a dowel through his body field point wound yeah it looked like yeah like you took a field point uh, arrow and just stuck it into him no that's definitely the number one out. complaint it, it didn't do it was like he didn't even know what happened yeah definitely but, he, the number but one i complaint punched him through the lungs he eventually yeah. faded out and then people were like and that's what i was like and you know i'm just going back to something i know and trust then people just said shoot him in the shoulder yeah, right. and they, oh, you got him in the high shoulder. So then, okay, so then I got to blow the shoulders out of him and ruin all kinds of meat. What if you miss? Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody's always preparing for the that's the yard shot, right? The yard right. The guy's like, oh, I hit him right in the head. It's like, is that right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, I mean, you, you want you got to prepare for. I mean, there's a lot of variables, right? You got to prepare for the variables. What happens if your shot's not exactly high shoulder? What happens if it's a little far back? Yeah. I like, you know, like the trophy bonded, the bear claw, like just a. Yeah, it just they, they works, all man. they all have failure rates, though. You know, yeah. I mean, it's 
you can say that those bullets, you know, it's super close range. You know, they, they might fragment too much on, if you do hit the bone and then they don't make it into the vitals. Especially some of the long-range stuff that is made to be very, you know, frangible. You know, you do hit a big bone right off the bat at 50 yards. That bullet just blows up and it might not, never even make it into the cavity. Yeah. So. All right. That's it. Right? That's all I got to say. You got a concluding thought, Randall? He gave it. Yeah, but I don't even remember. It wasn't like I wasn't blown away by it. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> what was it? Pretty high standard. He was saying he would he, he would trade his GPS to anybody out there. Oh yeah, and he's saying yeah. No, I remember now. Um, you did have a good concluding thought. Sport culinary. Sport yep. cutlery. He wants to be a sport cutlery <laughs> enthusiast, but you did have a concluding thought where that that you reiterated your disdain for bias. I did. Yeah, in, a, in an eloquent way. I made a point about someone hating lead because they hate guns. Oh, and you said, oh, but the, it yeah. ju- it's just as bad to love lead. It's just as bad to love lead because you love so guns. Lead can do no harm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them. Sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet. Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater.